This morning I want to talk to you about Michael's, Michael's hurt. I'm taking my text from 2 Samuel, and this is fresh this morning. And I asked Sharon, even sitting on the pew just a moment, why would God help me? And she says, just remember, you're a pastoral preacher, and God always has a purpose And when he speaks to your heart like this. So I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter, and we're going to read at the 12th verse. And I want to go quickly because I, I don't want to be long this morning. Attend to be, you know, for a sermon to be supernal, it don't have to be eternal. And it was told to King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that pertaineth to him, because the ark of the Lord, uh, the ark of, of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God out of the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they bare the ark of the Lord, had gone six paces, he sacrificed six oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Micah, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Now go to verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Micah, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Well, how glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of all of his handmaidens and servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said unto Micah, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all of his house to appoint me ruler over all the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I play before the Lord and I will yet be more than thus and will be base in my in my, mine own sight and, and of the handmaid and maidservants which thou hast spoken of and of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Micah, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Touch me this morning, Lord. Quicken me as your servant to proclaim the oracles of God to this church in Jesus' name. Amen. We talk a lot about liberated women. Here was a woman that needed to be liberated. Because one thing for sure, she was in bondage. She had been used as a political plum, plum or, or just a gadget by her schizophrenic, paranoid father. I mean, she had a lot of things against her, yet she managed for years to keep her hope alive. Then one day her dreams of that bright, incredible future that she had in her heart, her mind, it, it, it burst like a, a soap bubble that you would blow through those little rings and Somebody poked the finger and it burst, and that's what happened to her. And later in her middle age, after coming through all of this dysfunctional childhood, we, sir, we see her bitter and desperately clinging to an empty pride that was the only residue of the dream which she once had. Any relationship with God that she 
had an inkling of in the past was forgotten and gone. I, I read this story again last night to refresh it in my spirit before I gave it to you this morning again. I've read it many, many times, and you have too. You've studied about it in Sunday school. You know that Micah had been given to David by her father, Saul. Remember, she had an older sister that initially was going to be given to David, and suddenly she was bequeathed to somebody else, probably out of a political arrangement. And then it was learned by Saul that Micah loved David. She had such an incredible, romantic affection for David. And when Saul heard this, he said, good, that's the daughter that I will give David. So Micah had been given to David by her father Saul. And you know, David was this wonder boy warrior that had come out of the shepherd's field. And after slaying bears and lions, suddenly he's now ascending to the throne. And Micah had fallen head over heels in love with him. Now, now you got to understand, Saul cared very little about the happiness of anyone but himself. So when he felt that David's popularity was beginning to rival his own when he came back from slaying the Philistines, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands, suddenly the paranoia, the schizophrenic paranoia began to build in him again. And he tried to murder his son-in-law. I don't know whether you read the story. I read it again last night. And refreshing myself, remember Micah saved his life one time by putting a dummy in the bed. The father had sent messengers to kill him. And they, they pretended to be kind and sweet and nice. Messengers from the king. But she knew in her heart that her daddy was getting ready to kill her husband. And she put a dummy in the bed and put goat's hair in the bed. And, everything. and when they came in, David had already escaped and they found a dummy instead of David. She saved his life many times. But soon the realization that all of her wonderful dreams of a normal life with David were totally destroyed. David is now on the run and he's been hiding for many years. And then her schizophrenic father gave her to another man. I love you. I, 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 these stories intrigued me. Michael was given to another man. And, and no doubt this marriage was probably designed and strengthened by the political position of her father. You've got to understand, she wasn't even asked. There was no consideration of her. And still there's a lot of parts of the world like India and other places where this is true today. The woman has no rights whatsoever. She had no say-so whatsoever. And she was simply given to another man. Because David had now become the enemy of Saul and he was trying to kill him at every turn. Now if the story stopped here, it wouldn't be unusual for that day and time. You would say, well, that's just the way they operated. But her life took another heart-rendering kind of turn. When on Mount Gaboa, along with her brother Jonathan and other family members and the Philistines came in and he fell upon his own sword and suddenly the era of Saul was gone and King Saul was dead and Jonathan was dead, killed in battle. And suddenly David came out of hiding to become the king of the southern part of Israel. And, and then, you know, General Abner asked David to become the king of the whole country. And then Joab 
I'm just rehearsing the story that I've heard a hundred times, that Joab killed him. And, and, but when Abner came to David, I read it again last night, when Abner came to David and asked that he might be the king of Israel once again, David set up on one condition. He said, I want Micah back. I want her back. He said, I want you to, I want you to see this in your mind. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Micah suddenly found that this wasn't a soap opera. This actually happened. She suddenly found herself uprooted again. And the Bible doesn't say whether she was happy about this or not. I, I mean, this was a turn of events that she didn't see coming. It didn't matter whether she was happy or not. She, she had no say-so in the matter whatsoever. It was as though she was just mere chattel. I, I, I mean, she was just something to be used. She was like a bargaining chip. She'd been passed from here to there to yon. And if you, I read the story again this week too, where her second husband, who evidently loved her deeply, followed for miles following her as she went back to the throne to be with David and he was weeping and crying until one of David's generals said, if you want to live, you better get back home. Followed almost all the way, weeping and crying as they went. No one could tell me she didn't have mixed emotions. There was obviously to me some feelings of love between her and this second man, but now she was returning to her first love. And, and not only that, she's going to be the wife of the king. But as had happened so many other times in her life, this bubble of hope burst in disappointment. Her relationship with David that had been so wonderful and so, in, so invigorating and so romantic, it was not the same as they were the first time they were together, they were no longer young and they were no longer innocent young people. I mean, a lot had happened in this span of time that had changed both of them. David now had other wives and those wives had given him children and, and no, no question about it, this time Micah felt neglected. David was busy. He had governmental duties Duties with the kingdom. Duties fighting wars. And I, I, I can't help but believe as I read this story again that Micah may have longed for the, hus the love of her second husband, the love that he had shown her. And, and it's not hard to guess. Soon disappointment was replaced by bitterness. And it was bitterness toward God. It was bitterness toward David. And, and then pride came to keep all this bitterness company. How many of you know you can't control what happens to you? You can only control how you respond to what happens to you. And if you're going to live for God, if you're going to be the person that God wants you to be, you better take control of your emotions. You better not let things imperceptibly begin to happen to you where the root of bitterness begins to grow in you and it grows out of control. Even 
if her relationship was David, I mean, it wasn't all that she hoped for, but still she was the king's wife. I, I mean, she was the first wife the king ever had, and she was raised among royalty. Her father was King Saul, and, and probably she said to herself, you know what, I, I'm going to show all these country bumpkins how to act in a king's court. Sadly, but inevitable, her attitude widened and deepened. It caused a, cabin, a chasm to, to, to just begin to pull her and David further and further apart. And uh, as I read again about her life, I suddenly saw her attitude was not an attractive thing. I don't know how much you've been around a bitter person. I've been around bitter people before. I've pastored for 52 years. There's nothing attractive about bitterness. And eventually everything came to a head. Here's this rich, proud, extremely bitter Micah. She, she's, she's at the window of the palace overlooking Main Street in Jerusalem. And David is gone to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to... And you know what the Ark of the Covenant was? It was the visible symbol of God's presence to Jerusalem. Amen. And it, it had abode in the home of Obed-Edom for a number of years now. And, and remember, he tried to bring it back one time, and he brought it back the wrong way. And Uzzah reached out to, to stabilize it, and God, and he realized he had done the wrong thing because he's trying to bring back the Ark of God, the presence of God, in a Philistine manner. And God said, I won't have that. If you're going to have revival, you've got to bring it back my way. And so David goes back and he gets the ark. He begins to bring the visible symbol of God's presence back into that city. He's scantily dressed. He's dressed in a lowly minimum clothing of a lowly priest. He is so overwhelmed with joy, his clothing don't matter. And he's dancing and leaping with all of his might before the ark of the Lord. And suddenly, it's Micah from her perch in that palace place. Something snapped in her as she looked down from her queenly perch. And suddenly, she despised her shepherd husband who had come from the shepherd fields to be the king. And this lowborn husband of hers and she said to herself, my father would have never acted like that. And she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today. She said that in bitterness. She said that in mockery. She said that in ugliness to David. And with so many people, you have to realize that this problem did not erupt with just one incident. Are you with me? The Bible says that Jesus came to set at liberty those who are bruised. I've never understood that. Why do you have to set at liberty those that are bruised? Why don't you treat the bruised? What you have to understand, there's bondage in bruises. In fact, if you had a broke arm and you walked in in your day, I would say, you got a cast on your arm. You must have broke your arm. 
If you had a cut on your head, I would say, hey, Brother Langford, how did you, where did all the stitches, how did that happen? But now when you have a bruise, that's different. When you have a wound in this that's deep, sometimes it's under the clothing and you don't see it. But if you touch it, you'll get a reaction. Have you ever said something, done something, and you thought it was innocent, and suddenly you got a reaction that you never thought you would get? As pastor for 50, I, I stepped back and said, good Lord, where did that come from? Where did that come from? It came from possibly many things. It was not just this one instant. Her life had been marked with pain and rejection and loss. David was just another man who had disappointed her. David was just another man who had failed to make all of her dreams come true. And so I've asked myself as I read this story again and again this week, why wasn't Micah in that crowd of worshiper? Why wasn't she dancing with David? They were bringing back the presence of God into Jerusalem. She should have been there with her husband. same reason that some people sit in a pew today and other people are running and leaping and shouting and praising God but they can't because they're handcuffed by bitterness they're handcuffed by something that happened many years ago a wife that was unfaithful a husband that had an extramarital affair. Somebody said something. Somebody did something. And it has handcuffed them for years. And they sit there in bondage. You know why? Because they've never been able to release it. They've never been able to give it to God. You see, her personal feelings and her position had become more important to her than her relationship with God. Did you hear what I said? What a contrast. Once again, I say to you, it's not what happens to you in life. It's how you respond to what's happened to you. Let, let me tell you something. How many times, and I've counseled hundreds and even thousands of couples in marital experiences, and suddenly they come in and they, they not only get hysterical, they get historical. And they, they say to me, Pastor Loper, you, you'll never believe what he said to me 20 years ago. You'll never, you'll never believe what he did. You'll never, or she says, you don't know what he said. You don't know what he did. And they, they get historical. And the wound of what happened to them is just as fresh at that moment as it was the day it happened. David, on the other hand, was a man who knew how to worship God. Micah had lost all her desire to praise God. And I've seen that honing look on the face of people, pastoring hundreds of people for many years. That look of hurt and pain and anguish in the midst of revival when everybody else was leaping and shouting and running. And yet, 
like the prodigal son's brother. They were angry. They're not going to come in. You can kill all the fatty cows you want to. You, you, you can party all you want to. I'm not going to party. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. This, this right here, and, and I, as Sharon said to me this morning, because I wondered why God wanted me to preach this sermon. She said, John, you're a pastoral preacher. And we preach from a different perspective. We get down on a level where people live. And I'll tell you, I, if, if I could just tell you what I've seen bitterness do to people, if I could just tell you today what I, the resentment and the pain and the anguish that I've seen as a result of, of unforgiveness, the bondage that I've seen, the hurt and the woundedness that has lasted a lifetime. So what kept Micah from expressing her love for God? Number one, pride. You know the first of the seven deadly sins is pride. Proverbs, the 16th chapter and the 18th verse says, pride always goeth before a fall. Pride is that mental, moral condition that precedes all other sins. In fact, the Bible indicates that pride is the mother of all sins. Pride is, is that sin of selfishness, uh, uh, that undue self-esteem. Uh, I mean, looking at one as superior to his fellows. And, and the Bible says everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And he shall not go unpunished. Again, in Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble spirit. This is what I love about your pastor. He's so unpretentious. I love that about people. I, I love people that, you know, got their nose so high in the air when it rains, they almost drown. Pride is that haughty, undue self-esteem that's out of proportion to your actual worth. It's that repugnant egotism that, that is repulsive both to God and man. It's, it's that revolting kind of conceit that exalts itself before man and stretches itself in the presence of an almighty God. And my Bible says God hates it. It's an abomination unto him. Actually, that literally means it makes God so sick he absolutely shudders. Psalms 101.5 Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. God cannot endure pride. He hates it. Pride in all of it, uh, its various forms, uh, it just emanates from a haughty human heart. And I've seen it in my years of ministry. People take pride in their looks. Now, this is, don't mean you can't take care of yourself. I got up this morning. I looked in the mirror. And sometimes I wonder how God could love me, and then I really wonder how Sharon could love me. <laughs> I mean... 
got ears that look like a taxi cab going down the road with the doors open. <laughs> I got my loper nose. They used to say, what would you rather have? A barrel full of nickels or John Loper's nose full of pennies? But I see people got pride in their looks. God wants us to take care of ourselves. But I, you know, pride in your race, pride in your business. But I think the pride that God hates the worst is spiritual pride. It, it's the pride of the spirit. Do you know that's what caused the devil to be the devil? Who said, I will ascend to the mount of the most high. I'm going to be like God. That's what made the devil the devil. This is actually where sin began. Spiritual pride because it trusts in its own virtue rather than the grace of God. And God said, I want to tell you something. That's your mark for judgment. It caused you to have contempt for others. It causes others to have contempt for you too. Let me tell you something. In my, in my years of ministry, pastoring hundreds and even thousands of folks, I've seen some pretty prideful Christians. In fact, I've seen a lot of people who were better by nature than Christians were by grace. It says like that repulsive Pharisees. God, I thank thee that I'm not as these other men are. How many times have I seen that in my ministry? Smug, self-satisfied, full of contempt. God loathes and hates spiritual pride because it presumes to be good by its own merit and by its own right. And Micah had that spirit. And God said, I hate that. Another form of pride is intellectual pride. I probably never belonged to the men's society. But there's one thing I can recognize real quick, intellectual pride. Bible says knowledge puffeth up but love edifieth and if any man think that he knoweth everything he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know this kind of pride it, it manifests itself in arrogance toward the unlearned and the illiterate and the oppressed it's hard for you to see that all of our brethren are, ch the, are the children of God it, it forgets that the mental capacities that we have were given by God and, and the knowledge that we have attained has largely been acquired by the labor of others. And, and what is the reason for this intellectual arrogance? Paul says in Romans, the 12th chapter, the 16th verse, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be around people that are humbly, humble. People are filled with humility. People are not arrogant about what they know and how knowledgeable they are. And then there's material pride. We need to understand that everything we have comes from God. Deuteronomy the eight, chapter 18, verse, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth power to get wealth. First Chronicles 29, chapter 12, verse, David says, Both riches and honor come from thee. Thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand is to make men great and give strength to all. You see, material pride 
is a place where self is enthroned and we take God off the throne. And, and, and our life gets out of balance. Everybody in this room has been blessed of God. God has blessed my life. He's blessed your life. But we need to step back and say, oh, God, everything that we have, every gift that we have, it all came from you, God. And the other problem was Micah's bitterness. It was a blight against her life. It was like an emotional cancer. Uh, and in all my years of ministry, behind every church squabble, behind every church dispute, and I've been in a lot of them as a district official, which people had sank to the low measure of arguing about what color the bathroom walls would be painted or what hymnal we were going to sing out of. Behind every church squabble, bitterness, this kind of bitterness is lurking in the shadows. And it reveals itself in the, in the personality of a person who's caustic and critical and just overloaded with resentment and fault-finding and anger and animosity. And believe me, I've, 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 I've pastored a lot of people who had the gift of preacher correction. You find them everywhere. I'd like to say they're never, you're never found in churches. Yes, they are. Where you work, in your home. And, and sooner or later, and I've had to do it in my own life, because I'm not exempt from these feelings either. I have to say, am I bitter in my heart towards somebody? Do I have the seeds of this bitter fruit resident in my own life? You see, sometimes we have trouble facing our bitterness. And the reason for that is because the devil is whispering in your ear, you are justified to feel exactly the way you feel. That's where the problem comes. He says, you are justified. And it's so deeply ingrained, as I've seen so many times in people's lives, it's not simple to solve. And I could wear out every adjective that I have in my vocabulary describing what bitterness I've seen due to couples and marriages and children and homes. It's horrible. It's hellish. It's harmful. It's hurtful. It will destroy you. The word says, follow peace with all men and holiness without no man shall see the Lord. Look, looking diligently, lest any man fall from the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness spring up to trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. It's serious. So let's look at the root of bitterness. What, what is the root of bitterness? How does it begin to grow beneath the surfaces of our life? Number one, um, a bitter person normally is usually somebody that's been hurt and hurt deeply. Anybody here ever been hurt deeply? My hand would go up first. You've been hurt and hurt deeply. Maybe you were abused as a child. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. I mean, every day of my life, my daddy got up and said, you know what you are, little John? I was his namesake. He said, you're a zero with the rim knocked out. You're nothing, you'll always be nothing. You better be careful what you say to your children. It can become a self-fulfilled prophecy. I was horribly, I, I came up in a horribly dysfunctional home. I was abused as a child. 
Maybe you've had a, a friendship where somebody betrayed you in the worst, worst kind of situation you could imagine. And then there's love relationships. And the deeper you love somebody, if they betray you, then the deeper you're hurt. People fired on the job. People wounded in church. In my years of ministry, I, I dealt with hundreds and hundreds of people who were, who were wounded in church. They were shot by friendly fire. And they couldn't get over it. Is there anybody here this morning that hasn't been hurt? I doubt it. I, I, um, I, I don't think I've ever encountered a, a man or a woman who's never been emotionally and spiritually wounded at some time in their life. And it usually begins in childhood. And I think we could sympathize with children better if we could recall the hurts of our own childhood. And, and, and when you're hurt and you're hurt bad, it's our natural inclination to withdraw into this defensive shell. First of all, we react in anger and resentment. And we even have this desire, we're going to get even. I can't tell you the many years in my life when I dreamed of getting evil, even with a very significant person in my life that hurt me very deeply. But I'm, I'm telling you what, if you're a child of God, you listen to me this morning. If you're a Christian and you have the desire for revenge in your heart, I can tell you according to God's word, it is absolutely wrong. That's the old nature. It's before Christ took up his residence in you. You have no right to those feelings. You say, how can I get rid of them? Well, you need to confess it. You need to deal with it. You need to put it behind you. And if you do that, then it won't become that root of bitterness. Ralph Spees talked about how to deal with how you feel. He talked about resentment and bitterness and damaged relationships. He talks about how it grows and how it brings such trouble into your life. It deteriorates your personality, damages your spiritual vitality. It just destroys you. And the problem is, again, we justify it. We don't stop. Now, I'm a pastor, so once again, I, I didn't come here today to make everybody shout. But I'm dealing with issues that affect your life deeply. This goes on for years and years and years. You say, has that ever happened to you? Yes, it has. I'm confessing. You know? Confession's good for the soul, bad for the reputation. My wife can tell you, there was years that I dealt with bitterness. And we never stop. We, we don't realize how this is affecting us. And we don't stop to deal or grapple with our hurt. But we, we allow it to fester. We coddle it. We caress it. You know, it's like a little puppy. We, we take it out every once in a while and we pull it close. And we, we say we have every right to feel this way. We dwell on it. We mull over it in our mind. And, and we justify these nasty emotions. And then we... We begin to blame all of our faults and our problems on other people. You're the reason I'm this way. So 
Sometimes the person has hurt you unknowingly. And suddenly we begin to accentuate the negative. We never emphasize the positive. And we begin to build this mental file or dossier of other people's ugliness and failings. And you can find them in, a, in abundance because Jesus is the only perfect person that lived on this earth that had no fault flaws. And so we become unwilling to wrestle with this hateful, vindictive spirit. And uh, we begin to say, look what they did to me. Look, look at my parents. Look at my husband. Look at my associates. Look at the police. Look at the system. Look at my fellow workers. Look at my bosses. They, 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 they. It's always they. And suddenly this root of bitterness begins to expand in the soil of hurt. In this atmosphere of unforgiveness that begins to take root in your heart and your life and it affects every area of your life. And then the fruit of bitterness. And let me go quickly here. <laughs> Looking diligently, lest for fear any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up to trouble you and therefore many be defiled. Bitterness hurts a lot of people. I used to raise honeybees. And there was one night, I, my father and I were moving one of my hives, and I had a tour place at my mast. And I felt those bees going up in my hair and on my face. I said, Dad, we've got to set, set it down real quick. Got to set it down real quick. I said, my mask is torn, and I got bees all over. And, buddy, when I pulled that mask off, Pop, 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 pop. My face, uh, my lip came out here. Doctor said if you had not been stung so many times, you would probably died just from the venom of those bees. And they hurt me. But they hurt themselves worse. Because when they bit me, they fell to the ground and died. I'm just telling you. Like Micah herself, she thought she was belittling David and wounding David. She, she was hurting herself more than anything. I, I mean, as the Bible says, it will not only defile you, it will trouble you. Bitterness is just as infectious as AIDS. I, I, I mean, it's contagious. It contaminates not only you, but everybody around you. And it can, let me just say this real quickly because it can affect you physically. Dr. S. I. McMillan, I bought his book years and years ago, and I believe every word that I read in that book. He was a medical physician who pointed out negative feelings and what they can do, not only to your emotions, but to your body as well. And in this Christian exam, this incredible, wise Christian doctor, he talks about psychosomatic illnesses. And he listed over 50 diseases that are caused by destructive, sinful emotions. You want to live a long life? You better manage your emotions. You better put some things under the blood. Anger, anxiety, stress, bitterness, hatefulness, unforgiveness, all of these things, they can make you physically sick. 
We didn't realize that a few years ago, but now we know that to be true. You see, there's a lot of physical sickness that is a result of emotional and psychic things that are going on in your life. Most of them are associated with bitterness. Unless you put them under the blood of Jesus, it could cost you dearly. Now, we're Christians this morning. But think of the young man in Florida, hurt, wounded, mama go. Am I justifying? No way. What he did was so evil, it's beyond words. But you've got to understand how the devil works, how he takes hurt and pain and turns it into a travesty that's beyond your comprehension. Rejected by other people and, and, and now recalls into that shell and the anger and resentment just elevates to the point where he walks into the school and, and shoots and kills with an AR-50 17 members of his household, uh, of his school classmates. What about a man in Las Vegas that would climb to the high-rise floor of one of the casinos there and in that concert just begin to spray people with bullets? You say, how did that happen? Because of bitterness that was never dealt with. That suddenly there was a violent burst of outrage I've seen Christians who maybe didn't go to the extreme, but they've come into my office and uh, after I've heard of what they've said or they've done, and they looked at me and said, what happened to me? How could I do that? How, how could I say that? What happened to me, Pastor? You see, clamor is your anger and bitterness when it becomes vocal. You snap at another person. You yell. It becomes a verbal contest. And you begin to villainize, villainize the other person. And then clamor can pass, as the Bible says, to evil speaking. It's no longer an argument, but now you're name calling. And I've seen people say things, they didn't mean that. Husbands and wives. I can't stand you. I wish I'd have never met you. I want a divorce, and I'm going to get it this week. Won't you just get out of my house? I hope I never see you again. I hate the ground you walk on. If somebody calls your name, I want to spit on the ground and step on it. I've heard it all. Those are all things I've heard. And sometimes there are untruths that you don't, you don't really mean. But once you've spoken them, it's like milk spilt on the ground. You can't, you can't bring them back. And, and I'm telling you, in this clamor, lasting harm can be done. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. David Osberg, in one of, Berger, in one of his books, he said something that has really, and I'm closing, but he said something that gripped me like 
Nothing I've ever read before. He says, the man who forgives pays a tremendous price for the evil that he forgives. He says, if the state pardons a criminal, society bears the burdens of that criminal's deed. In other words, if I walked into your house and you had a priceless vase in your house and I, I was to carelessly throw it on the floor or drop it and break it, you would forgive me. In other words, you would bear the loss, but you would say, no, you don't owe me anything. You go free. So I want everybody to listen to me because this is the essence of forgiveness. You freely, freely accept the consequences of my sin and you let me go free. In other words, you bear the anger, the wrath of another person in a voluntary way, accepting responsibility and the hurt that's been inflicted upon you, but you say, you know what? I release you. You don't owe me anything. So here's Micah. She had hurts that was off the chart. She had hurts that was eating her alive. She had lived a life of hard knocks. She'd probably said a thousand times, why me, God? Why did I have to have a schizophrenic, paranoid daddy like my daddy? Why, why didn't I have a husband that paid me more attention? Why don't you do something, God? And then there was pride. Probably because of the example of her father, because of her position. I don't know why, but she was proud. She had turned inward, and she suddenly became afraid of what other people would think. And she was afraid that David's dress code that day and his outfit would cause his subjects to think less of him. But she needed to realize something. And you need to realize something today in this pastoral sermon that I'm preaching to you. When someone worships God, you have to lay all your pride aside. Worship says, there's someone here today that's more important than me. Are you hearing me, church? That's the reason a selfish, prideful person can't really worship God. Because all of their thoughts are always centered upon themselves. My dignity. That's the reason some people, I, I've had people couldn't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they, I'm going to lose control and people go see me do something that I've never done before. And, I, you know, and pride doesn't let them say, God, I'm yours. Do what you want to with me. Always centered on themselves, their dignity, their problems, their hurts. And Micah never came to God with her hurts. Her preference was self-pity and pride. But I want you to see the bold contrast, because David was a man after God's own heart. I want you to see the bold contrast to she and her husband. Even with all of his faults, and he had a lot of them, David was a man who knew the heart of God. And, and most likely, he probably had more hurts than Micah had. I mean, it was tough going during his early manhood. His brothers belittled him and made fun of him and said ugly things about him. And when he was hiding from Saul, th there was probably times in his life when he said, God, you're not keeping your promises. Why don't you just take this man out? He's trying to kill me. 
You see, David could have been filled with bitterness in face of all of his adversity, but he kept his relationship with God in good order. And where did he succeed where his wife failed? Listen to me. David loved the presence of God more than his position. He loved the presence of God more than his wealth. He loved the presence of God more than his personal pride. He loved the presence of God more than anything. And that's why I love this church because I, I, I sense every time I come here, you folks love the presence of God. Don't you let anything stand in the way of you coming into the presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was that visible symbol of the presence of God. And he said more than anything else, I want that Ark close to me. Hmm. If you don't have need of the presence of God in your life, then something's wrong with your relationship with God. You see, worship takes the focus off of us it takes the focus off of our problems and it puts it on God. That's the reason I've seen so many times in my ministry in the past hurt and embittered and wounded people can't worship because always their focus is on themselves. It's hard to worship God when all of your focus is upon yourself. David was more concerned about God's dignity than he was his own dignity. And although his worship seemed foolish, he didn't care what other people thought. Only one thing he thought, I want God to be glorified. Yeah. And there's many ways to worship God. We preach in a lot of different churches, and we see a lot of worship wars. But I'll tell you, how we worship isn't nearly as important as getting down off of Micah's perch and Micah's balcony and doing it. As Nike says, just do it. Just do it. It's not about the lyrics. It's not about contemporary or whatever. Just do it. Just worship God. I preached a sermon a long time ago. I entitled it different from this. Women that won't dance can't have babies. And churches that don't know how to worship cannot bring new babes into the body of Christ. The churches where people say, I want to go there, I want to be there, I want to be in that church, is churches where people know how to worship God. And worship is primary. Oh. Micah died and she was barren. She lived an empty, barren, horrible life for the rest of her life because she didn't know how to worship God. King David, the most famous and respected kings of all the kings of Israel, his name is known by everybody. It's because he knew what the heart of God desired. Women that won't dance can't have babies. And churches that won't worship can't birth babies into the kingdom of God. And I'm going to close with something this morning. Somebody will come and softly play on the piano, just real softly. I'm going to close in a very different way. You know, when you get uh, to a certain point in your life, you look in retrospect. 
and uh, very, very softly. And last year I did this. In fact, I put it in an annual report to about eight, nine hundred ministers in Alabama. Because I reflected on my life and I made some commitments to myself at this stage and juncture of my age. And I shared some commitments that I'm going to share with you today. The first thing I said in my report is, and I'm going to read it to you today, I will not live my life in the past. We all know that if you're in the ministry long enough, sooner or later, you're going to be cut on the sharp edges of some broken relationship. Invariably, you're going to get wounded. No one's immune. In the ministry, we can't be like the man who said, if it wasn't for these guns, I'd be a soldier. The truth is, we're all soldiers. And we're subject to being hurt. Now, I'm speaking to some younger pastors that sooner or later are going to experience what I've experienced. But I've determined that I will not be controlled by past offenses. I have found that when I allow the past to be piled up on top of the present, the weight is more than I or anyone else can bear. So I've committed myself to forget those things which are behind and to reach forth for those things which are before and to continue to press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Then I, I said some other things that I'm not going to read it all to you. But I said I don't want to lose my excitement about the ministry. I have a deep desire to continue to be used of God. I remember the years ago when I graduated from Southeastern Bible College in 1965, how intense my desire was to serve God. The size of the church, the salary that was paid, the difficulty of the task, none of that mattered to me. I just wanted to be used of God. My heart is to maintain that passion at this stage of my life. I want to live out the words of Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever my hand finds to do, I'm going to do it with all my might. I want to re-energize be re-energized every day by the Holy Spirit. I, I want to be aware that today, right now, is the day that God has given me and He wants me to live it out to the fullest. And something else I wrote is I reflect over 50 years, over 50 years of ministry and the many people who have been loving and helpful to me. And today I ask myself, in light of what I've been given, what's been given to me, who am I trying to help today? Are the words that I speak filled with comfort or criticism? Is my heart filled with compassion or complaint? Do I see the best in people or do I see the worst? The Bible says that we're to comfort one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to pray for one another, forgive one another, and love one another. And if we do that, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. For the rest of my life, I want to continue to love, help, and give. These are commitments I made to me. Another desire I have is to maintain a life of integrity and purity. Many years ago, someone said to me, whatever you do in life, keep, keep it clean because you're the windows through which you will see the world. No wonder the Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence because it's out of your heart comes the issues of life. An impure heart can affect many things. Things such as our love for God, our love for our neighbor, and also the love we have for ourselves. We need to remember that clear thinking and clean living are as inseparable 
or inseparably attached as we go on together. That's one of several commitments I read in that, uh, wrote in that report. I, I'm going to tell you something, church. I want everybody to stand right now. And as I told Sharon this morning, I know this is a different sermon. But God was speaking to somebody this morning because the Holy Spirit brought me back to this again when I tried to leave it. Maybe you're experiencing Micah's hurt. hurt. Maybe something happened to you. Something wounded you. Something wounded you deeply. And the hardest thing you've ever had to do is try to get over that hurt and that wound. I don't want anybody looking around. Not one single person looking around. But I want you to bow your heads. And right now, I want you to begin to intercede for everybody around you. And I know, young people, it can happen to you. I think the worst hurt I ever experienced in my life was when I was a young man. I've already told you about it. But we got to give those hurts to God. If you allow that to fester like Micah did, there'll come a day it will hurt your relationship with God and your, your brethren. Would you just lift your hand and say, Pastor Loper, the Holy Spirit identified me this morning. Look at the hands. Look at the hands. Look at the hands. Look at the hands. I promise you I'm not going to hold you more than two minutes, but I want you to step from where you're at. I want you, everybody to come here. And in two minutes, I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go. Come on, right very quickly. Everybody in the building, come on. Come on. My mama, you know I talk about my mama a lot. I'm a mama's boy. She was left with 11 children when I was 13. And uh, she was the one that looked at me and we came home from the courthouse and $40 a week and living in an unfinished home and bathing in a tin tub and had a prime pump and a path. had to hang blankets on the wall to have privacy. My sweet, godly mama announced to us that she'd never marry again. It's not for everybody. Not that anybody wanted to marry somebody with 11 kids. But she said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to raise you children, oh God. She said, I'll never marry again. I wanted to be bitter for her for a long time. She had been done so wrong and so ugly and so bad. I, I just, and I'll never forget when she was dying. Pastor Keith, you know, Pastor Keith, my associate for 34, 35 years, he was with me. And uh, first of all, I said, Keith, will you will you pray for mom, my mom very quickly? And she's just a few moments away from death. She said, what's wrong with you, little John? Why don't you pray? I said, I will, mama. And then she looked at me. I've never forgotten this. 
she looked at me and she said, you know something, little John? She said, I can't think of one person that I don't love. Huh? Let me, I got a list here. I kept it for a long time. I, you, you need to rehearse yourself. She said, I can't think of one person that I don't love. That's the way I want to live. I don't want to live in the past. I don't want to experience Micah's hurt. I don't want to let it fester in me to it affects me. I don't want my grandkids to say, you know what? My papa was just a mean old man. I want to have the spirit of Christ. I want them to see me as a loving grandfather. Up here this morning. I want you to lift your hand. I'm, I'm going to close. Lift your hands to God, everybody in the building. Lord, I want a cathartic, cleansing moment in my life right now. And this thing that I've had in my heart for so long that the devil said, You're justified in feeling this way. I release it this morning. I give it to God. I give it to God. No matter what they said, how ugly it was, or what they did, or how you were abused, I give it to God this morning. Because my relationship with you is more important than coddling this hurt and this anger and resentment. I give it to you. I want to be joyful. I want to be able to enter into your courts with praise. I want to enter into your courts with praise. I don't want any hindrance in my life. I give it to you this morning in Jesus' name. Now, I want you to just say right now, if you're just whisper, you don't have to say it out loud. God, I give it to you. Cleanse me. I, I don't want to wrestle with this any longer. Cleanse me. I want it gone in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want you to give the Lord a hand. Give the Lord a hand this morning. I, I know this was different. It was fresh and new to me. But I'm telling you something. I always try to obey God. Whenever God gives me something, I don't wait till the right moment to preach it. I preach it when God gave it to me. Because this was for somebody this morning. You be set free. Be set free. My wife can tell you, I was in bondage for years. Be set free today. Amen.